State Farm Insurance knows that understanding and investing in our cultural identity is paramount in protecting our future. We know what it's like to go from nothing to something, to wish that we had better financial literacy when we were younger. Luckily, State Farm is here to help. With funding programs like Project Ready, which is committed to education achievement and has already awarded over $11 million in scholarship offers to black and brown youth since 2021. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Afrotech World 2020. Charles Hudson, managing partner at Precursor Ventures, is on the virtual stage talking with Issa Watson, co-founder and CEO at Squad. And it comes as no surprise that when you're investing early in the startup life cycle, many will find that what they originally started building has to morph into something new. But what does Charles think about this pivot? Does he get concerned when he invested in one thing and it becomes another? Yeah, the pivoting question is a good one. So I do care about the initial idea. I, I know some pre-seed and seed investors who don't care about the initial idea. They're just like, this is an amazing person. The, the challenge we have is that most of the companies we back, they're raising 500K to a million dollars. It's not a lot of money in the grand scheme of things. So if your first original idea is really off base, you might not have enough time to actually pivot to a new idea. Pivots are pretty common for us at Pre-Seed, normally because we're backing somebody pre-product with a hypothesis. And sometimes you roll out the hypothesis in the form of a product and it turns out that the market responds to it in a very different way than you had expected. So whenever that happens, I always try to take founders through a set of questions to figure out did we get something wrong about our initial hypothesis? And sometimes it happens. Sometimes the hypothesis was correct, but the market is less interesting than we thought once we get into it. So, hey, there's people who want to buy this product. They like it. Selling to them is kind of a pain. Servicing them is kind of a pain. There's a market here, but not one that like we as a company are like super excited to tackle. And then sometimes you launch it and you go, the product we launched was okay and it's fine. But in launching it, we discovered something that we think is way more interesting. So the way I think about it is it's always okay, I think, to pivot if you're doing it from a position of knowledge. What I worry about sometimes though is people who are flailing. They launch a product, it doesn't work immediately. So they launch another product and that doesn't work immediately. Sometimes you just have to like take a breath and figure out what did you learn? And sometimes the answer is, the product is right, the market's just not ready for it. So do we want to hunker down and be patient and wait for the market to catch up with what we think? Or do we want to just say, hey, you know, we're way too early here. We should probably abandon this and find something new. So a lot of what I try to get people to think through is, what did we actually learn from this launch? What did we actually learn about the customer? And are we doing this from a position of information and knowledge, not from a position of like fear or panic? I'm Will Lucas, and this is Black Tech, Green Money. I'm going to introduce you to some of the biggest names, some of the brightest minds, and brilliant ideas. If you're black in building or simply using tech to secure your bag, this podcast is for you. 
Jabari Williams is Chief Operating Officer of Bandwagon Fan Club, a data and identity analytics tech company focused on the sports and entertainment space. She's also a diversity, inclusion, and corporate social responsibility consultant. Prior to Bandwagon, she held executive roles at companies like All Turtles, StubHub, and Facebook. Bari's a thinker, not a coder. And I wanted to gather her thoughts on why it seems to be harder for black people who are in non-technical roles at companies that build tech to see themselves as being in tech. Alternatively, if we say we work in HR or legal at a healthcare or energy company, we're much quicker to say we work in those sectors. Is there still some demystification that needs to happen about what building tech means? Yeah, there probably is some level of disconnect, I guess I would call it in terms of, are you really in tech or are you tech adjacent? <laughs> and I think, I, I feel like, particularly in my field, like being a lawyer, I feel like you're still in tech because there are certain things that you have to do and double check in terms of make sure the product doesn't violate any laws, um, that your privacy is kept private, that you know something doesn't happen where the company ends up getting sued because of some discriminatory element of what it is that you've created, or even if it's looking at it from the lens of how inclusive is the product? Like, can a blind person use this? So if the answer is no, you may be opening yourself up, not just to lawsuits, but people also neglect the fact that, you know, a tech company can do something and get horrible PR and get dragged. And that has absolutely nothing to do with whether the product was good, bad, or indifferent. It could be, you had a really terrible marketing campaign, but if you might've had a black marketer in that room, they would have told you that that ancestry DNA where a slave runs away with her master is not necessarily the best way to get us <laughs> to sign up for ancestry DNA kits. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes it's about saving the company from itself, even if you don't think that that is a, a an adequate tech role. And I'd say that because I'm married to a product manager. So he is very in and of tech and not tech adjacent. So, but I still don't think that you know, I don't think that th those roles are tech adjacent. They're just as important to keep the company going as, as anything else. Do you think there's any level of feeling not included because we may not be able to code if we work at a tech company and we can't say we work in tech? Yeah, I definitely think people will look at it that way. There are lots of people who look at it that way in a sense that, oh, well, you're not really, you're not really in the industry because you can't write a line of code. I sure can't, but I could tell you, you show me how, what you've written and how it works. And I can tell you whether that's legal or not, <laughs> that, that's valuable. <laughs> so I, I rebuke that whole idea in the name of Jesus, but I understand that some people don't. Um, but I do think that there's definitely kind of a, there's definitely a hierarchy and people look at it as the people who can code or the people who are product managers or the people who are product designers. Those are the people that are really in tech. All your, you know, your GNA functions, your legal, your sales, your marketing, um, HR, DNI, they look at that as like, eh, it's not really, you're not really moving the product forward. Yeah. You know, you, you've done a lot of advocacy for being in the room and trying to hold the door open for other people to be able to get in the room, but how can you admonish other folks to both strategically and successfully um, advocate for having more faces, you know, brown faces, black faces in the room um, when everybody don't want us in the room. So how, do, how can we do that and not feel like we're in a precarious situation, you know, putting ourselves in jeopardy? Yeah. And I think that there, I wouldn't even say that a lot of people don't want us in the room. I say most of them probably don't want us in the room because we're going to point out things that they don't see because a lot of these people, they're coding and building products that it's, it's solely focused on their lens and view of the world, which is not the global population. Sorry to say, that is not what the global population looks like. Y'all are actually in the minority. So they don't want us in the room. But I think what's important is, and I always lead from a diversity standpoint, is if you tell people how much money they can make or how much money they will lose, that is when they will listen. That is when they will care. They don't want to hear, like, I never ever start a conversation with, oh, well, it's the right thing to do. Well, I, well, hell, we all know it's the right thing to do, but 
if people really cared about doing the right thing, it would have already been done. So, but if I tell you, if you put out this type of marketing campaign with these visuals and this narrative, you are going to get dragged on Twitter. That ad is going to have to come down. You will have lost $500,000 in however many man and woman hours creating this ad. So there's that angle. Or it's if you make it a product that is inclusive and has multiple use cases and functions and also maybe has an audio function, has a function that you know will allow that to have a blind person use it, you're going to gain that much more traction because now more people can use your product. Mm-hmm. So that's more revenue. You know, you, you testified uh, before Congress um, about AI bias, artificial intelligence bias. And, and the congressman asked you, about how that could be, you know, when you're just developing this 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 software, and I guess some people might imagine that it's not inherently racist; it's just code, and right. And but, you know, can you speak to what's happening with the development of AI that should be potentially a cause of concern for Black and Brown people as we get more into a world that relies on artificial intelligence? Yeah, and when he asked me that question, I kind of. I just remember sitting in church with my mom and she would just pinch me and say, fix your face, fix your face. (laughs) Because I was like, what do you mean? How is it, how could it possibly be inherently biased? It's code. Well, who makes the code? Mm. People with some unconscious biases. (laughs) Like, it's not like the code magically came from the sky. A lot of things that go into making these algorithms that will tell you your credit score or your availability for a certain mortgage amount is based on stale data. So the example that I gave was if you are basing this off of data from 1965, well, they were still redlining in black neighborhoods saying we couldn't, having restrictive covenants and deeds that said we couldn't buy in certain areas. So if you're using that data, it's going to be inherently biased because it's based on racist laws. Mm. And so if you are not updating that data or using additional data to corroborate what you have already coded, then you're doing it wrong. And the way that the easy summation of that for me is who fact checks the fact checkers? Because in this instance, the people that are coding the algorithms that will determine your credit worthiness will also determine, um, they also use this same kind of functionality in policing uh, algorithms to tell police where they should go on certain times of days. And it's based off of previous crime data history. It's based off of moon phases. It's based off temperature records. It's based off of like randomness. So you're just going to say, because in 1985, it was 88 degrees in East Oakland. So now we need to send 20 cars to patrol there tonight. Yeah. Like, oh, and it's also based on sports team records. So I guess, how do you gauge that? Because how many cop cars do you send to Notre Dame when they win a big game and those kids storm the field versus the Warriors lose and you have had a bajillion cars around the Coliseum. (laughs) So like, how do you gauge? And a lot of that is gonna be, you know, unconscious bias. You're gonna send the 20 cop cars to where the majority of the black people are, but you know, those white kids storm in the field. Oh, they're just celebrating. Yeah. Can you lighten things on fire? Can you, can you talk to me like a little bit about what's, what's happening in the actual technology that allows it to be biased, like seeing certain faces versus other faces, thinking some people look alike versus other people looking alike? Oh, well, if you're talking about like the unconscious bias, there are actual tests for that where you have to decide and that you get like, I think, three seconds to scroll through. Um, and I've taken this course. You have three seconds to decide if this person is like a good person or a bad person. And it's interesting because you could see, you know, Sikh men with with their hair wrapped, or you could see a black woman with natural hair or who's dark skin, or you could see a lighter skin black woman with straight hair, or you see a white lady, or you see a, a dark skin black man. And you literally just have to press the button and figure out, oh, is this person, not sure and even just like not just looking at their face but also their clothing some of them had on college sweatshirts which is going to give you a whole different skew of that person right like so maybe i might be afraid of your face but if i see the fact that you're wearing a shirt that says stanford maybe i'm less afraid and it's little subtle cues like that too 
So you, you're dealing with people who are taking those tests and to some extent are failing them. Yeah. Uh, and those are the people who are actually doing the coding. And it's then understanding that even little things like the hand dispensers in, um, in public bathrooms, like you go to the airport and I have to stick my hand under that thing three times before soap will come out. And it's because it was designed for people with lighter skin hands and little simple things where it's not that you think people are doing it on purpose. It's just, that is what they're used to. And so that is how they design the product. And the same thing is transferred to code. Well, if, if this is the data that I've been given in order to base your credit score off of, and this is historical data of what the credit scores in certain, based on your zip code, based on your age, if this is the information that we've had for the last 10 years, well, then that's what I'm gonna use. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots? Being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. How do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs? 55% of white businesses survive the startup phase, while only 4% of black businesses do the same. So I want every black entrepreneur to know about the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative. The 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale 1 million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field from free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 million black businesses initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of black and brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So we've already established in this conversation that, you know, they don't want us in the room in the first place, you know, in order to the people that you're advocating for, they don't want us in the room. And then at the same time, having us not in the room causes these biased situations to proliferate, you know, to use a big word in that respect, you know, probably a bigger word than necessary. <laughs> but so the million dollar question is, is how do we get more of us in the room in order to be able to solve these problems for our future? I think the answer to that is probably twofold. One, it's going to take people willing to bring people into the rooms that are not carbon copies of themselves. And I say that because I think the stat is something like 53% of tech employees are referrals. And let's just say like if the company is 
probably 60% white males and the other 40% is a mix of everybody else, but also in that 40% would be predominantly Asian. Well, that leaves us with at about probably 5% at best. And I know that one thing that I did when I worked at Facebook is every single person that I referred was a black woman. Even when I left, I still would float their resumes give them to people who I knew were allies internally. And the good news is they all got hired, Mm. but it's because I knew who to pick and choose in terms of like advocating for them internally. So that's one thing that is hard too, is like nine times out of 10, if you have an internal advocate that will get you farther down the line. But because there are a few of us there, it's hard to find an internal advocate. So usually it's a friend of a friend or somebody from that went to your college or your law school or your business school or what have you. And it doesn't always have to be um, a, a black internal advocate, but somebody who knows how to navigate that system and will, will champion it for you. And I think the other piece to that is also just making sure that, you know, if, if you get inside, you have to be, to me, I always look at, um, there was a line in my black graduation from Berkeley and I think it was Michael Eric Dyson who gave the speech. And he always said he, at the end of the speech, he said, be a Trojan horse. So that's kind of how I look at everywhere I go is, and I've seen two types of black people in these companies. One is the type that's a Trojan horse and is gonna hold the door open and advocate for other people to get inside. Or if there are people already there, you advocate for them to get promoted or you advocate for them to get better work assignments. And the second type of person I've seen is the type that wants to be the special Negro snowflake. And they wanna make sure the door is slammed because they wanna be one of a few. Like that makes you feel special. Now that doesn't make me feel special, but, but for some of those people, it's that is their calling card. That so the less the less of us that are there, the more special they feel. And so they want to make sure that the door is shut. And I have even seen DEI practitioners like that, which to me is like, how do you have this job? Well, I mean, I know how you have a job because you're gonna be a yes person for the majority. But it just seems like a a cruel bait and switch. But I would say it's it's gonna be that twofold. You have to have people that are on the inside that are gonna be Trojan horses. And you also have to make sure that you have internal advocates and work your network. You know, tech is still, you know, a very new industry main, in, main, in the mainstream context. You know, if you think 15 years ago, you, you just started to get things like Facebook and, and et cetera. And then, you know, so let's say, let's call it 20 years that tech has been like in the, the dominant, you know, mainstream conversation. There are so many attorneys who maybe work in real estate law or maybe they work in uh, criminal law, but they want to be in to this tech thing. How can they find their way into helping startups? Yeah, I would say there are lots of startups that um, can't retain large firms. So like if you think of like a a MoFo or Cooley um, you know, they they just can't afford the larger companies. And so the answer to that would be maybe that person offers them discounted services just to get the experience to say that they've been advising startups or helping startups. I think that's one thing that actually would be great in terms of bolstering your resume. And then who knows if that startup actually gets more funding, then you would be the person that they would end up hiring as their first attorney whether that's a general counsel role or some other. Um, The other thing you can do is I always tell people to make your experience analogous to whatever it is that you're applying for. So people tend to look at resumes and they don't really, or they look at job descriptions rather, and they don't change their resume to fit the narrative of what the job description is looking for. That is a huge no-no. So for every bullet point that is on that job description, your resume needs to detail how you have either done something that is just like that and here are the results that I got from doing that work or it needs to be an analogous argument. Meaning 
I didn't, you know, I didn't necessarily do it this way, but this is something that I did that is very akin to what it is that you're looking for. And I don't even, I would start off with, I haven't done this. I would just say, you know, in accordance with, you know, X, Y, and Z type of experience, I've done something analogous such as blah, 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 blah. And here were the results from that. So always make sure that you are reading the job description and making sure that your resume lines up with it. A lot of people simply just send the same generic resume out over and over again. And also they need to be mindful that the way the job descriptions are written, it's, you know, sometimes you can't tell what is, I bucket them in three ways. Something, what's a, what's a must have, what is a nice to have and what is a moonshot? Like we want you to have these, you know, five imperative skills. It would be great if you had these three that are nice to have. And then like, also if you speak Arabic and Japanese, like we love it. Yeah. <laughs> now you probably aren't going to get that, but the other things you probably can. And um, also be mindful that though the, the words and the phrasings that they're using in those job descriptions, those are the keywords that they're going to be searching for in their portal when they're looking to advance people to screening interviews. And so again, if you're just sending out a generic resume and it doesn't have any of those buzzwords in it, you're not gonna get past the screen. So let's take the other arguments or the other case to this. How does a startup that has potential court an advisor who may be a lawyer? Like how? Like what gets Bari's attention to for you to be an advisor to my thing? A good idea. Like, honestly, I'm not someone who focuses solely on, you know, ooh, how, how fast can they go public or how much money can they make or how much money have they already raised? And for me, it's, it's also the journey and like how passionate are these, these people or this team about what it is that they're doing. And also I always try to ask people, you know, what, what is a differenti differentiation factor between you and your competitors? Because at that point, I've probably looked at who who's your competition. How is this different? Like, what what's going to be the factor that gets you noticed and gets you investment dollars, and not crash and burn, as opposed to these people who are already doing something similar? May not be exact, but if it's similar enough, people will pass on it. Um, so those are the things that really catch my attention. And um, in a deck, yeah. what is your what does your deck look like? If you have a 30 slide deck, I'm not, I'm not reading all that. <laughs> <laughs> like just, and I can tell you from working with, um, working with startups and then working with people, working with investors, that's literally the first thing they say. They want a deck that is 10 slides or less and 10 is pushing it. Yeah. Get it to seven. That's even better. How should startups be thinking about compensating advisors? Like, is there a compensation for an advisor role? Is there an equity package? Like, how do you get, you know, folk really good attorneys to come on and give them some incentive to be there? Or do you mm -hmm. need an incentive to be there? Um, it's going to be on an individual basis. And always, I always say you get what you negotiate. <laughs> so that's something that people should always be mindful of is it's not going to necessarily be, you don't, you're not necessarily going to always get what you deserve. You're going to get what you can negotiate. And for me, when I have done it, it's been a mix of actual just equity and, and compensation. Some people choose just compensation. Some people choose just equity. It's really going to depend on what that person wants and what it is that the startup can, can provide. I would say nine times out of 10, it's easier for them to provide equity because they may not have the cash on hand yet because they haven't raised. So, but if you're getting equity and they're doing a pre-seed round or anything else, like you're, you're gonna be one of the few people that, that that's on the cap table. And that's a good place to be, particularly if they end up getting funding and they do go public or they're acquired. That's the other thing people don't think about. Everyone's always so like, you know, short term focused on, ooh, how, how long can we get to IPO? Well, maybe IPO isn't necessarily the best route to go. Sometimes it's perfectly fine to just get acquired by a larger company. I was looking at your website and so many people have blogs on their website that do not get updated uh, because people got stuff to do, but like you really go in on, on your writing, right? And I wonder like what makes you prioritize the thoughts that you have to say to publish them regularly. Yeah, I think 
because there's always something going on, particularly in the last, I would say, three years. There's there's always been something going on, whether it's in the tech space or it has to do with social justice. And like that was the thing that I wrote um, last was talking about, you know, all these tech companies made these pledges like after George Floyd and like, oh, we care so deeply and yeah. we're going to invest in black founders. We're going to do business you know we're going to do have more supplier diversity funds deviated and set aside for black owned businesses and we're going to have these hiring targets where we're going to have 25 percent of our leadership is going to be black and it's like okay and then you read the fine print and it's like by 2026 <laughs> and it's like okay well that's fine at least you gave me something to work with right like i have there's a metric yeah and then there's a date but that was my gripe is it's been a year and no one has reported out on any of the things that they've done. And like, where, where is it? Because it, I could say, I'm going to do a whole bunch of things today and, but I won't have them done until 2026. So does that mean you're not going to start working on them until 2025? Mm. So for me, it's one of those things where it should be a constant progress report. And the other thing that gave me such pause about that was the idea of saying, oh, well, we're going to self-audit and report out to the press. It was like, you know, no, that literally is like what I said. That's like if I punish my son and then tell him, well, what do you want your punishment to be? And he says, I want cookies and ice cream and my Nintendo Switch. And I say, OK. And then I'm just going to report out that he was punished. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you all that other stuff. So that to me is not a viable option. There need to be independent auditors that are coming in and looking at that because there's no, there's no incentive for the companies to, to really tell us the truth, right? Like they'll just report out the metrics that fit their narrative that makes it look like they did something, but they're gonna completely bypass maybe the other four things that they said they were gonna do. So we'll just tell you about this one, just focus on this one. And then you ask them, well, what about the other four? Well, what about them? We really did really great on this one, though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but some, when we have, I don't want to call everybody in diversity theater, but there's a lot of folks who do do diversity theater when we think, when we have things like a George Floyd during the COVID mm -hmm. pandemic happen. And so a, a lot of us do talk about well, how to, who's holding these folks accountable to what they said they were going to do. What has to happen to get to a place to where there is a body that holds people accountable to those promises like what is it shareholders that have to step in and organize or like what has to happen in order to get to a place that we're saying we're no longer having to say somebody has to hold them accountable to such and such is holding them accountable yeah i i think it should be it, it's going to be a mix of shareholders and i would love to see like a coalition of independent auditors who kind of do this work um and then make them actually have to sign on to handle that. But I think that that's going to be very difficult because these people, they don't want to be held accountable. They want to continue to do what they're doing and do it in the dark. And when they decide to tell you something is when they decide to tell you something. And it's, it's troublesome, but I think that, you know, press asking these questions and that's why you asked why I publish as much as I do is because Again, so who fact checks the fact checkers? Or in this case, who's gonna who's gonna tell me what you've actually got gotten done? You had mm -hmm. a year, and like I want to see, I want to see the receipts, and it looks like you don't have any. So what that tells me is you haven't started working on this, or if you have, your results were so abysmal you didn't even want to share them. So, but I think there's a fast company like they don't they donated, but they uh. They made their entire June issue around this topic. And I think if you have more people continuously asking the question, you can only avoid it for so long if there are like eight or nine publications asking you the same question. And that's the other thing I thought was super interesting is then you have people who write independently or I'm, but I'm a fast company contributor, but then you have other people who are doing things independently asking the question you have people creating tools that are asking the question. My favorite tool last year is one called layoffs.fyi, where it listed all, all the people who got laid off during the pandemic from, um, I wanna say starting in March, and from a whole bunch of big tech companies down to like some smaller ones, but ones that are significantly funded. And, it, and on, in some cases you could see 
the names of the people mm -hmm. and a cursory glance of that, the names in the department that they were in. And it was HR people, it was salespeople, it was DEI people. It was all the people where typically people of color and women congregate the most in those departments. And you could look at some of the names and it was very clear. I could probably guess what this person is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's that's the thing is like you have people who are doing it independently. You have you know actual magazines and press asking the question. There's only so long that you can hide this information. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots, being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your Frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. State Farm Insurance gets it. Representation alone doesn't equate to authenticity. State Farm understands and wants to help protect our communities by investing in our future, building off the hard work our parents have done before us. We all are looking to create generational wealth so that our families and generations behind us have a better starting point than we did. That begins with financial literacy. State Farm helps fund programs like Project Ready, a National Urban League program committed to the educational achievement of Black and Brown youth. To date, participants have been awarded over $11 million in scholarships offers as a direct result of contributions from State Farm. At Eating Wallbrook, we hear inspiring rags-to-riches stories on each episode from our guests, but with State Farm, you can begin to write your own success story. State Farm believes that being better neighbors creates better communities and have a long-lasting impact. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. There was a blog post you did about social media and it being an extension of white privilege. And there was a, and, and white privilege in the office. And I, I specifically wanted to hone in on this one line you wrote. It said, um, there's an added layer of complexity when you add tech and social media to this mix. Now, you don't just get to know your colleagues in the workplace, but also by their digital presence and what they choose to comment on or avoid. And I particularly ask this because I hire people and I wonder, because the first time I see a resume, I go to look at Facebook, I go to look at Twitter. I want to <laughs> see what you're talking about and who are you really beyond this resume that you gave. And I wonder mm -hmm. your thoughts on how this continues to play out and the complexity in tech. I think that the complexity with it is like, oftentimes you're, you know, you're working with these people who are also building the tools and one thing that they did at Facebook is as soon as you accept your offer, I think within 45 minutes of me accepting my offer, um, my soon to be colleagues sent me Facebook requests. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> how are we doing it? I don't know. I don't. Mm -mm. And my husband specifically said, why don't you just create the limited profile function and add them to that? And I said, honestly, that sounds like a lot of work. Like that's me maintaining essentially two digital presences on one platform. That's too much work. If you look, get what you getting. So yeah. if you like, I remember the, that might've been like the second or third week that I was working there. And that man who had that really cute mug shot with the blue eyes and everyone loved him. And I posted something about it. And my general counsel swiveled his chair. Cause he sat at the next bank of chairs and he was like, so 
That's what you like? Oh. I was like, oh, you got jokes, Colin. Okay. And I said, look, I don't want, no, I don't want a felon necessarily. I don't want him. He's like, but it's a, it's a cute picture. Yeah. He's cute. <laughs> <laughs> What's it, what, what they call him? Prison Bay or something? Was it Prison yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that's the thing. Well, Prison Bay ended up coming up. You became a model and married like a millionaire. Yeah, Left his family a millionaire. So he, he won, I guess. So, but yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, at any other workplace, nobody would have seen that because I wouldn't, if you send me a friend request and like, you just remain in purgatory. So I think it is the, the digital presence of, you know, what are the things that you choose to comment on and what are the things that you ignore? And it's not like people don't notice that. So whether it is, you know, you didn't acknowledge that there was a string of people that were killed by police or armed vigilantes in the case of Ahmaud Aubrey. If there, you don't want to talk about that or you don't speak on that or you don't notice it, but you hear us talking about it in the break room or something, or you hear us talking about it outside of work and you happen to just, you know, join in with something like that, but you don't say anything. Don't think that when you walk away that we weren't talking about the fact that you didn't say anything. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've been in other workplaces where something like that will happen and, you know, people will just completely pivot and run from the conversation. And, but I've also been in a workplace within, this is one of the people that I say was a great, great ally when I was at Facebook is this guy named Mark. And it was after Mike Brown had been killed and I just didn't have an open workspace. And I just didn't want to, I didn't want to stand there all day and sit there like where people could come up to me and act like this didn't happen. Like you're just coming and, you know, talking to me about whatever. And I just, I don't want to talk about that. So I went and locked myself in an empty conference room and he went around the floor to all the conference rooms looking for me. And then when he did, he just knocked on the door and I was like, sure, come in. And he was like, I just want to know if you're okay. And I was like, how, how long did you go around this building? <laughs> he yeah. was like, about 10 minutes. Yeah. And he's like, but I just wanted to know if you were okay. Like, cause I saw you earlier this morning and then I didn't see you again. And I was like, honestly, no, I'm tired of this. It's exhausting. And he was like, I know. I was like, if you want to talk, let me know. But like, that's the kind of thing that like, that I clearly I noticed that versus everyone else who acted like it didn't happen versus a different colleague who was like, oh, wow, somebody was shot by the police. I didn't even know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you have the luxury to not, to not know or to not care. And that's what I mean by the extension of that versus you see people hop in conversations about politics or something else. And then it's like, oh, he has a different view than I thought. Or, oh, she is probably a Karen. And <laughs> you, I mean, you just look at that stuff and you notice it and you just file it away in the back of your head. Right. So that's yeah. what I mean by the extension of like you get to when they say bring your whole self to work. First off, I don't agree that necessarily everyone should bring their whole self to work. I, no, no one should bring 100%. <laughs> if you're going to get as close as you want, maybe bring 80. Yeah. But even then, that 80, I think, is reserved for certain types of people. And those types of people tend to be straight, able-bodied white men. Yeah. Um, I was intrigued by your post, the computer-generated apocalypse that never happened. And I wonder where you see this particular trajectory progressing um, with regards to like social media, AI, venture capital, even. And if we stay on our current path, there are some that would say, you know, the wealth gap gets broadened, minority communities get hurt even more than they are. Is this the same thing as the, the apocalypse that never happened? Or where do you see this progressing as we continue to go down the road of AI? and certain people getting funded versus other groups of people getting funded and, and, and the like. 
Um, I think what you could say in that case, I wouldn't say it would be a computer generated apocalypse that never happened. I would say a computer generated apocalypse that did happen. Um, and I think we, we all saw it. It, it all happened in real time with, you know, disinformation all over everyone's social media platforms. It's still happening in terms of just the vaccine. And people don't want to take the vaccine because, oh, well, I read they're putting microchips. Like, where are you all getting this? But it's one of those things that if, you know, you are using non-traditional outlets to get your information, which I don't think is necessarily always a bad thing, but like, I'm not taking any type of, you know, medical advice from Alex Jones on InfoWars. It's just not ever going to happen. And I definitely don't need Tucker Carlson to tell me that COVID isn't isn't really real and I don't need a vaccine while you were vaccinated, sir. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, it's we've seen this already happen in real time and it's still continuing to happen. And I think if there isn't any type of actual regulation, I don't know that we can prevent it from getting worse. You've, I mean, you've already thrown an election and now you're getting people sick. So it, it's, it isn't that it's not happening. It, it is happening. The question is, how do we stop it? And I think the best answer that you have for that is, and I don't know that social media companies in particular will like the answer, is right now they are distinguished as platforms, which means they're not subject to certain mm -hmm. regulation. Publishing. But if you call them publishers, yeah. now they have a responsibility. Yeah. And, but they don't want it, which I could understand. Their attitude is, well, we're just the mechanism and the portal for which you post and share whatever cat videos, pictures of your kids, or Trump lost the election, or he won the election, whichever you choose. And they don't want to be responsible for having to take down information about, oh, well, no, he won the election, it was stolen. And, you know, those were loving tourists that visited on January 6th. Like they don't want the responsibility of that, yeah. which I understand. But at some point you can't just continue to proliferate all of this. Yeah. Like you can't, it's this essentially the equivalent, the digital equivalent of throwing a rock and hiding your hand. Yeah. That's also why I, there's another uh, social media company that I like a lot called telepath because you actually have to use your real name and picture or you cannot participate. Versus Twitter, it's like somebody with a cat photo and like Don one two three four, and he's calling you everything but child of God. Damn. So, I think if there some of that would be skirted, if people could not hide in anonymity. There was this period during COVID and right after the murder of George Floyd, um, where Black people I feel like had this window of opportunity to. Capitalize is the wrong word, but for the sake of this conversation, capitalize on the attention that we had from venture capitalists, from corporations, from people who finally saw that we weren't crying wolf all these years, but that were there were actually actually systemic issues that kept us from being able to progress in many different areas of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, is that window now closed? Are we are we are we so far past it to where? They don't have to talk about it anymore. They don't have to pay attention anymore. That is a good question. And I've thought about this for a while myself. Um, I my, my prediction was that it was probably gonna be over either after the election or around January after inauguration. I would say it's not closed, but it's closing. And the reason being is, um, I think there's, of course, now a different added element to it where you have all of these voting restrictions being written into state laws. And you also have these two Democratic senators who refuse to do away with the filibuster in order to write, write that wrong and get federal legislation passed. Like, they don't want the John Lewis Act. They don't want For the People. They definitely don't want the George Floyd Policing Reform Act. But I think as long as those things are still churning and on the table, the window is still open. I would just say it was like it was open like this last summer and it's probably open like this now.
So it, it's it's there. It's just closing. But I also think that it, that's on us to like keep forcing it and keep pushing it. Black Tech Green Money is a production of Blavity Afrotech on the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia. It's produced by Morgan DeBond and me, Will Lucas, with additional production support by Love Beach and Marissa Lewis. Special thank you to Micah Davis since the cars of Anyan, you know, like the wine. Yes, that's his real name. Learn more about my guests and other tech disruptors and innovators at afrotech.com. The video version of this episode will drop to Black Tech Green Money on YouTube next week, so tap in. Enjoying Black Tech Green Money? Leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. Go get your money. Peace and love. dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. AT&T connects and old to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the driving to work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T.